Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging SoonerCon. SoonerCon is Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention, and SoonerCon 30 is happening a week after this episode drops, June 24th through 26th, 2022. I will be there, and I hope to see you there, too. Go to SoonerCon.com to purchase your membership. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today I'm welcoming Ryan Britt here to talk about his new book, Phasers on Stun, which discusses the creation of the entire Star Trek franchise. And afterward, we're going to have a little bit of a chat about sci-fi coffee and how it ties into everything. Let's get started. On tap today, we have Ryan Britt. How are you doing today? Good, sir. I'm good. How are you, Aaron? Doing all right. Uh, I've just been going through your book, Phasers on Stun, and having a good time with it. Uh, just came out, what, this week? Two weeks ago, believe it or not. Okay. It was, uh, yeah, on the 31st, May 31st. But yeah, I mean, you know, very recently. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm liking it because this is not my first time reading a book about the making of Trek. It's not even my fifth time. <laughs> But you're covering it from a very neat angle that's very fresh right now. And that's very, I think that there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. I mean, you're the, you're the reader that I think I fear the most, frankly, okay. <laughs> you know, um, I think that I pitched the book sort of like as something that could be for anybody, you know, who had maybe, you know, would never read a book like us, you know, like mm-hmm. I, have, I, you know, I, I, I have now read, uh, you know, 25 books about the making of Star Trek. You know what I mean? Perhaps perhaps more. Um, you know, so I think that I um I wrote it with the idea that a very casual fan could rediscover all those kind of factoids that we're so familiar with. Mm-hmm. But I also wrote it with the idea that someone like you would would not be like you got that one wrong, Britt. <laughs> you know, like I think that I, 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 um, I said I've said this before, and, and I'll just say it again: is that I have a deep respect and admiration for uh, the the giants whose shoulders I stand on, which is like Mark A. Altman, Ed Gross, who wrote the Fifty Year Mission, which is a double volume oral history of Star Trek, came out in twenty sixteen. Larry Nemesek, who's like this amazing Star Trek historian. Um, or uh, Mark Cushman, who wrote These Are the Voyages, which are the really in-depth books about this. So there's a lot of people uh, that I, um, you know, relied on their work. And what made you want to write this particular book? Well, you know, I think that two two things. Um, one, I, ha- I have been a science fiction journalist professionally for about 12 years. So most of my professional career as a writer, right? I'm 40, you know, so I didn't start getting published till my late 20s. Um, and I started writing criticism and journalism about science fiction. And um, I had done a lot of journalism on the new shows, you know, starting in 2016, you know, when like <clears throat> it's announced that Nicholas Meyer is going to be on the writing staff for Star Trek Discovery. I get on the phone with Nicholas Meyer and like, hey, can you give me a scoop uh, for one of the publications I write for, uh, Den of Geek or Inverse or wherever I've been writing for uh, the past, uh, you know, 10 years or so. So I've been doing a lot of journalism on the new shows and I kind of wanted to do something with it other than just, you know, let it sort of, you know, atrophy online. You write something online, it kind of goes away and you can't really, you know, you you put it in a book, you can kind of make it live again. 
So there was that. Um, and then I just felt like there had never been a book about the entirety of Star Trek for everyone in one volume that also sort of had something very specific to say. And that was, uh, you know, that the radical dynamic revisions and changes of Star Trek are not only the reason why it survived, but extremely shocking when you just sort of pull back and try to compare it to anything else, you know, to compare it to any other pop culture phenomena. And you can't really um, find something that has radically reinvented itself so often and yet somehow is recognizable as itself. And so I thought that was really interesting. And I was inspired by a lot. I'm always inspired by a lot of other nonfiction writers outside of science fiction history. Um, and I always say this, but my favorite writers are like Chuck Klosterman and Rob Sheffield, who write about rock, right, who write rock books about rock. Um, and there was a great book that Rob wrote in 2017 called Dreaming the Beatles. And um, I'm a big Beatles fan. I don't know if you if you like the Beatles or rock I do, history. Very much yeah. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. So like I love the Beatles and I can't I can always read another book about the Beatles. Right. Um, and so I remember reading Rob's book and he's Rolling Stone critic and he's like one of my favorite nonfiction writers and being like, OK, so this is going to be another book about the Beatles. And then I was blown away by how different it was. And I had written one collection of essays at that time. And I thought, God, I'd love to do this for Star Trek. I'd love to do like a really fresh, fun, approachable um, book about Star Trek in the style of um, these, uh, like someone like Rob, in the style of a rock critic, you know what I mean? Because I think that Star Trek sometimes is unfairly sort of like, it's science fiction, it's a cult thing, you know, but I just kind of wanted to write about it like it was the Beatles, because it's like the Beatles of TV. It's the Beatles of science fiction, you know? And so I wanted to give it that proper, like big pop culture, like take, but also just from my point of view, you know, so that, that was, that's a long answer to a simple question. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But when it comes to that point of view, one thing that I've been consistently impressed by and I, what I think kind of sets the work apart is that you do a really good job at not accepting the simple explanations for any of these stories that we've told ourselves over the past 50 plus years. I mean, there's a lot of things that, well, you know, for example, that how they, they've set the original cast together or, or how the show managed to get its third seasons. There are stories that have been circulating and they probably have a nugget of truth to them, but there's probably a little bit of pragmatic views that, and, and you're very good at bringing that out. Yeah, and I think that a lot of those stories sometimes sort of contradict each other a little bit, right? And that, and like the further you go back in time, the more you have to kind of acknowledge some of those contradictions. You know, the, the, the joke that I make, I think early on is like, who talks Gene Roddenberry out of Spock looking like Satan, mm -hmm. right? Like, who was that? You know, and I think the joke I make in the book is everybody wants to take credit for that. <laughs> you know, uh, everyone from Samuel Peoples, who wrote Where No Man Has Gone Before, uh, to, you know, uh, uh, Gary Lockwood, to Herb Solo, the producer, you know, everybody's like, oh, no, no, I was the one who talked Roddenberry out of that. And, and I think that, like, you see that a lot in the early chapters of the book, like, you know, the idea that, um, Gene Roddenberry pitched Star Trek as wagon train to the stars. And I knew I was going to get in trouble for this in the book. And I've received a lot of emails from friends being like, wow, you really go hard on that. And I think that it's exactly what you just pointed out, Aaron, is that like, I was a little troubled by the way that the wagon train for the stars thing, mm -hmm. for those who are listening and don't know, 
Um, Gene Roddenberry frequently said in the 80s and 90s that Star Trek was pitched as wagon train to the stars, which is a reference to a Western uh, television show from the 50s. Um, and the, the idea is, is that like Roddenberry just said this a lot. And so then every Star Trek documentary and every Star Trek nonfiction book was just like Star Trek was conceived as wagon train for the stars. Like there are several documentaries that like show a man hunched at a typewriter and wagon train for the stars. And I'm like, is this real? You know, like, is this legit? And then you find in like a 1996 book uh, inside Star Trek, the real story by Herb Solo and, um, uh, uh, Robert Bob Justman, Justman. Yeah. Bob Justman, yeah, yeah, who were the producers of the original series, them being like, eh, well, he did have it in pitch documents, but nobody really liked it. And then you've got uh, Mark Cushman being like, eh, Harlan Ellison said he ripped it off from Samuel Peoples and it wasn't really his coinage. And that then you've got like NBC executives being like, he didn't really use it in the pitch meeting that sold the show. You know, so then that's just like one thing, right? That's just like one example of, of what you're talking about of saying like, okay, <laughs> let's just like, pushback it might not be a myth but the emphasis that's been put on it is perhaps a little bit um yeah incongruous right like with the way the way things really are uh so yeah um and then yeah you kind of then try to unpack that as far you know as far into the future as you can as you can take it uh yeah i, I mean just from for example just to use a very small example promoting my own show there are so many times when people ask what's it about and my answer depends on who I'm talking to because it's about a lot of things and you can find a lot of things in it depending on you know what you're looking for and I can't imagine that Gene wasn't in that position himself many many times just having to say okay this person wants to hear about space travel this person wants to hear about wagon train yeah and I think that like you know I, I, I stopped short of saying that like, it's not like Star Trek didn't have an agenda because of course it did. I think that what's interesting is just that the way that it was sold and pitched to the writers, it's not like Roddenberry walked in to Desilu Studios or to NBC and says, this is gonna be a progressive show that's gonna push racial and sexual boundaries and really be in your face with the, he didn't say that, you know what I mean? The show did that, right? The show did that. And I think that that is something that's sort of interesting because, um, you know, he was a businessman. And I think that it's just really funny that I talk about this a little bit, as you know, in the book about how he was pitching a store, a show called Police Story with DeForest Kelly, you know, at the exact same time he's pitching Star Trek. And you're just like, gosh, I'm really glad Police Story didn't get picked up. <laughs> you know, like, I uh, sure, you know, I don't think that we'd be living in a good, you know, the world would certainly be a worse world. Uh, but there, there are, there's a lot of pragmatic things about the original series. And Walter Koenig said that to me. Like he was like, there was a lot of pragmatic reasons for the way we made the show. And I think when you talk about the original series, now people tend to sort of like only focus on the famous things about it. And I kind of wanted to focus on those things, but also talk about just the show in its totality, which is just like this amazing show written by some people who were born in the early 1900s, you know, were like writing for the show. And then you've got people that, you know, like were as young as David Gerald, uh, you know, who was born in the 40s, you know, but that, it, it, you know, it's just huge swaths of generation gaps in terms of the uh, creative talent that went into creating the original series. And the fact that it feels as contemporary as it does uh, today is just mind blowing, <laughs> you know, when you consider that. A lot of people like to bring up the quote unquote genes vision and they, they make it as if this was always something planned out that was very specific, like a blueprint. And 
I think it does a disservice to look at it that way. I think part of the, the beauty of it is that it really did come together a lot of times out of necessity, a lot of times by accident, by collaboration. Yeah, I mean, he definitely wanted to do a multicultural, you know, science fiction show. And there's that story uh, where he's talking to uh, Kanaf, uh, a friend of his, and being like he wanted to do a steampunk show. It would, wouldn't have been called that then, but he wanted to do like a thing, a 19th century thing on a dirigible with a multi, uh, a multiracial crew, you know, so he wanted to do it. Um, but yeah, like I don't think, you know, look at the cage. That's the only evidence you need right there. The cage is the only evidence you need that there wasn't always like this political uh, sort of like representational agenda. There are no people of color in the cage. There aren't. You know what I mean? And so it's, I think it's so funny now because I love Strange New Worlds now, but I think it's so funny when people like Alex Kurtzman or whatever joke about how like, oh, this is the 55 year pickup. This was the show that was pitched in 1964 and it's like right but if the cage had been picked up as filmed mm -hmm. automatically it's not as diverse you know you know at least you know in where no man has gone before the second pilot you know no no Nichelle yet but you did have George Takei you know what I mean in where no man has gone before and you did you, you uh you did have a Lieutenant Alden you know but I don't think that the cage is the proof of what you just said is that this didn't necessarily like it wasn't this like perfect ideal, I, platonic ideal of Star Trek right out of the gate. It became that. Uh, and then it, you know, metamorphosized, you know, <laughs> over a dozen times, you know, after that. Yeah, it, it just, that's not putting down anything it accomplished. It's just no, acknowledging no. the realities of the production. Yeah, and, and, and I think that like you said, it almost makes it better because then you're like, wow, like the fact that it became this is almost more interesting when you embrace, and the fact that Gene Kuhn, you know, the other Gene, uh, who, who was a script editor on Star Trek, you know, a showrunner that we would call now, um, you know, invented the prime directive. You know, that wasn't a Roddenberry invention, you know, and that that doesn't that doesn't take away from Roddenberry or, or Gene's vision, as you said, but um, it's the other Gene's vision for that one, <laughs> you know, but, um, and you know, and I'm not the first person to say that, I think that um, what I was just trying to do is not have it be like buried in like one part of a large book to have it be like, here's a whole chapter on this, yeah. right? We're going to really dig it, you know what I mean? And then really, uh, you know, try to illustrate it in a way where you're not, um, you know, I love oral histories as a journalist and a researcher, but I don't think that like I could recommend an oral history to like my wife, you know what I mean? Who's like not a pop culture uh, omnivore, you know what I mean? And so I think that I, I did think about people like my wife, who is like a poet and who reads like serious novels and enjoys watching Star Trek with me, um, but isn't like, you know, she has to be like, who's Q again? You know, <laughs> you know, so I think that I wrote it with um, that kind of person in mind who was like, who thinks that Star Trek is one of the best pop culture things of all time, but wants to know a little bit more as to why. That's exactly why I think somebody would read this is for somebody who is aware of it, but maybe they just got their subscription to Paramount Plus and they see there's a whole category on Star Trek. And like, wow, this that thing's still around. Are they still making that? I didn't realize this was still a thing. This is kind of the explanation as to why. Yeah, that's the why. And I think the other thing is, is because I've written online for so long, I also found that there are kind of two fandoms, right? 
like there are the fandom of people like you and I who are like, I've read five books on Star Trek. Like I know a lot about Star Trek. Like I'm aware of all these things. I've seen every documentary. I love Star Trek. Um, and those people sometimes will participate online and you'll get emails from those people or they'll comment on social media or they'll tell you that you got a fact wrong on Twitter, but they didn't read the article. So you actually got it right. Uh, but you know, whatever it is. Um, and then there's tens of thousands of other people who just read the article and don't comment and don't write an email, you know, and I know they exist because I work online and I can see how many people read my articles. You know what I mean? And I go, I remember when Discovery season one was coming out um, I and I was an editor at Inverse. Um, my editor was sort of like shocked by how good the traffic was. And I was like, because there's a lot of Star Trek fans that aren't necessarily like vocal. They're just out there watching Star Trek having it affect their lives in a positive way and then you know wanting to like maybe read a little fact about it or an interview with one of the people and then they're moving on you know and i i thought that was a i wanted to sort of honor those fans you know it's a really good way of doing it and i, I think that you know for example inside star trek by herb and, and bob i love the book but at this point it's 25 years old it came out in 96 yeah, yeah. i mean yeah so it's this is it it needs to be redone every couple of generations so that the, that the context becomes more relevant. Like I said, Bob and, and, and I couldn't have talked about Discovery. They couldn't have talked about Picard or Strange New Worlds. And that's a lot of those things, like you said, have clawbacks to the original series. Well, yeah. And I'm, you know, I, I was born in 81. And so like, I'm the exact age of Mike McMahon, who's the uh, showrunner and creator of Star Trek Lower Decks. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like whenever I've interviewed him, I've always felt like, that that generation of those of us who grow up grew up with the next generation now we're old you know <laughs> and i think that there's something about that where i'm like oh but relative to other journalists who have been doing this for a long time i'm young and so i'm sort of caught between like um you know i interviewed uh celia rose gooding who plays uhura on strange new worlds this didn't make it in the book because it was you know way too late in the game i only got a little tiny bit of strange new worlds in there partly because a lot of those folks were in discovery season two uh, you know, uh, the 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 three principal characters anyway, but Celia Rose Gooding, you know, is in her 20s now, you know, so she, her first Uhura was Zoe Saldana because she was 10, <laughs> you know, or, or something, you know what I mean? Because that was, 2009 was, you know, however long ago that was, you know, uh, 13, years, 13 ago. years ago, right? So 13 plus, you know, whatever, so yeah, she's 23. <laughs> you know, so I was like, wow, you know, that really put put things in perspective. And I had some writers who wrote for me at Inverse in like 2017 who were in their 20s and they were like, yeah, yeah you know, this J.J. Abrams movie that was I saw that in high school. And I was like, OK, <laughs> you know, and that was their Star Trek. And so I think that there's a lot of that um, that, um, yeah, it, we don't really know what that's going to look like in 10, 15 years. But that's kind of where we are right now. And I'm like of this kind of in-between generation where I was like, I remember when Star Trek was on for 18 years, you know, from 87 to 05, from Next Gen to Enterprise. And I remember being like, I was a little kid when it started and I was in college when it ended, you know what I mean? And that, and that was a formative thing on my life. So I think that, um, yeah, that's just sort of informs my perspective. And, sure. you know, in, in 10 years, somebody else will do supplant me, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I just just to kind of compare, I I also was born in eighty one. All right, there you I, go. <laughs> I will explain to people. 
I do remember life before the next generation, but it is a very fuzzy memory. Like it, it, it it's just brief flashes, but it's like, I get that, that it was a big deal. They made something new with it. Yeah. I mean, I think that we took it for granted, right? Because like, I, I, I think in the book, I say this, um, but like, I, well, I know I say this in the book. I don't know if you got to that part, but um, that LeVar Burton was kind of like one of the reasons I was sort of cajoled into watching it because he was on Reading Rainbow previously. Um, but yeah, and what was that like for you then? Like, like, did you know about Star Trek before you watched The Next Generation? Yes. Uh, my first exposure to it was the animated series. Oh, cool. That's interesting. That's my daughter's yeah. first exposure. <laughs> yeah, specifically the counterclock incident. I, that's one of the ones she's seen. I love that. Yeah. So, you know, when Robert April becomes, you know, a member, a character, it's like, okay, this is a big deal for me. This is like everything coming yeah. full circle for me. Recently. So when like Adri when Adrian Holmes is Robert April was on Strange New Worlds, is that what you mm -hmm. mean? Yep. Yeah. Um, how did you, did you like that? I did. I mean, yeah, it's me like I said, you're, you're going back to my first exposure to the show. Yeah. So you can't get better at that. I remember watching the, um, I, you know, I, I'm a journalist, so I get them a little early. But I remember watching it and having to like go back and being like, wait, did they just say what I think they said? You know, because he's like says Bob very casually mm -hmm. in that first scene where he's like when he buzzes in with the shuttle and comes to get uh, Pike. Uh, yeah, I love that. I love that um, that casting. I hope that um, I feel like we're going to see a little bit more of April before the end of Strange New World season one. I think yeah. we are. Uh... <laughs> but it, I mean, it wasn't so much in, in my mind. It wasn't so much next gen. Because if they had only been next gen, it would have always been this discussion of the old Trek versus the new Trek. For mm -hmm. me, it was when they made DS9 and it became clear that this wasn't a one-off experiment. They, this was going to be the plan to iterate this as time went on every few years. When you do something the third time, that becomes an iteration. Well, that's interesting. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. I like that. Every you do something, then it's, then it, like, that's when it counts. That's a really good point. I like that. Yeah, I think that, well, we would have been tweens, right, by the time Deep Space Nine is happening. And I think that mm -hmm. that, I almost remember that better because I was older and, I, and my, my sort of love of Star Trek had already been like, I was, it was complete. Like I remember going, I almost put this in the book, but I remember going to a Star Trek convention right after in Phoenix, Arizona, where I'm from, uh, right after Deep Space Nine came out. And do you remember when they used to do this at conventions where they would do like these cool sort of music videos where they would do like music video montages. They'd take like a really popular song. And they, anyway, they did what they would do like, um, it would be like Bones and they would have like Robert Palmer's Doctor, Doctor, Give Me the News. I got a bad case of loving you. And it'd be like a Bones music video and it would be great. So they did one for Deep Space Nine and it was Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. And I'll never forget it because I remember it just being like, it was this, they just, you know, it was like there had been a handful of Deep Space Nine episodes out at that time, like maybe like 10. Um, it was like, you know, summer of 93 or something. Um, I guess the first season had mostly been out at that point. But um, I remember being really like, feeling like it was going to just keep going. And that Deep Space Nine was so different, you know, and being challenged by that as a child, you know, I would have been uh, 12 in 1981, uh, 90, 91, 10. Yeah, 12, 13. Um, so I remember being really like, oh, like Picard and Cisco don't get along, you know, they're on a space station, but I just like, I've rewatched Emissary recently, and I think it's the best series premiere of any of the shows, 
because it's really like it sets it up mm-hmm. really well um and it paradoxically has this like in the weed, and I say this in the book, but like this really in the weeds cold open where it's like, okay, it's season four of the next generation, Picard's a Borg, deal with it, <laughs> you know, and they're like, they just like start in that flashback and then they, you know, bring us to the present and, you know, it's a couple years later and Cisco's taking a man of Deep Space Nine, but um, it's a really self-contained, uh, wonderful premiere and it does tell you a lot of what you need to know about the show, but I remember that. I don't know, for you, were you like, were you as jarred by DS9 as I was as like a tween? <laughs> I was, but for me, DS9 was the first chance I had to watch a Trek show from the beginning. That's true. I was yeah. kind of, I spent my first, you know, exposure after, you know, watching the animated series, I, I, I saw some movies and it's like, okay, I watched the original series and next gen, both in reruns, trying to play catch up, watching them out of order. DS9 was my first chance to watch it from the first episode. And that became my favorite Trek for that one of those reasons i mean there's other reasons as well yeah i remember that too because i mean with next with next gen like my memories of like it were hazy until like season three and that's when i felt like we were like taping it you know every week and i remember being allowed to stay up late to watch best of world worlds with my mom you know so like and then after that like it was like every it was like i but yeah i don't deep space nine though you're right i it was the first one i was the same i watched it from the beginning um and then, yeah, you and you age a lot, you know, from 12 to, you know, seven years later, then you're like in high school, you know, that's a different thing. Yeah. And, you know, you're probably having the same experience as I was, but, you know, that final episode airs like a week after your graduation. That's, I think that I graduated in 2000 and, and What You Leave okay. Behind aired in 99, right? Yes. Yeah. So I was, so I, I remember watching like, yeah, whatever was happening in Voyager was my senior year uh because voyager was the first show that took us into the 21st century <laughs> mm-hmm. but I, and I remember a year later watching um you know being in college but like being at community college and not really knowing what i was doing with my life and watching Endgame, you know with like a bunch of friends and family uh the voyager finale um and being like kind of sad um because <laughs> i love i love voyager too um but yeah i mean i never really um yeah, that's a. It's fun that I I love that we're the same age. That's such an interesting. I don't find that as often as as you'd think. Interesting. Yeah, I do like to compare notes on on how people find things and and what their experiences are because it you know when people really get into something it doesn't have to be Trek it could be whatever they're truly into Doctor Who that has a big following Star Wars what what have you what they're into and what what's going on in their life is always as important to the story as what they're what they just got into. That's that's a really good point. I really like that. I have an essay in my first book, which was 2015. The book's called Luke Skywalker Can't Read, but there's a lot of essays about a lot of different franchises in there. And I have a per, it's more personal essays that you know the phrases on stun is a very kind of straight ahead, um, you know, uh, history book with a very you know, uh, you know, I use some of my memoir skills in it. But um, I have an essay in my first book about Doctor Who sort of pulling me out of a depressive. Uh, period because i feel like doctor who was like star trek when star trek wasn't on mm-hmm. you know what i mean like in 05 is like when doctor who comes back right russell t davies and that's when enterprise ended and there was nothing you know what i mean and then you know nine you had the movie or whatever but i feel like doctor who is like the only other i was just thinking about this today because i was really excited for um 
the next sort of iteration. I was thinking about all the Doctor Who. I haven't been able to cover it as much as Trek, but I probably wouldn't have become a science fiction journalist if it weren't for Doctor Who. Because like that was some of the first things I covered in New York when I was a journalist, was to like cover the new Doctor Who premieres and interview the actors and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, and I know that those guys have a great affection. A story I almost put in my book was sitting with Mark Gaddis, uh, who's a writer on Doctor Who, co-creator of Sherlock, um, who of course played Mycroft in, in the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock show. And we were sitting, and you'll love this, we were sitting in the Museum of Moving Image in Astoria, New York. And they had um, these cartoons playing behind us in this part of the museum, and it was the animated Star Trek. And I'm supposed to be interviewing Mark Gaddis about an episode of Doctor Who he wrote for uh, Peter Capaldi's second season. So this would have been 2015. And we just start talking about Star Trek, me and Mark Gaddis. And we talked about Star Trek for like 10 minutes before the interview began and him talking about how much he loved the animated series and how much, you know, what his favorite iterations were. And Discovery was sort of like a rumor at that, you know, people knew that a new Star Trek show was coming. But yeah, I mean, that's, I think that they extends in amazing ways. To round to roundabout to what you were saying is that like I think that what I like about Star Trek is there's so few shows that you can compare it to, in terms of it's just sort of like how upbeat it generally is. Um, you know I'm loving the new Obi Wan Kenobi show, but you know it's a bummer. You know, <laughs> and I just you know and I'm not saying Picard season two wasn't a bummer because it was, um, but you know I think those shows have a lot in common actually <laughs> Obi Wan Kenobi and Star Trek Picard, but um, you know I think Doctor Who is probably the only one I can think that consistently has some of the same uh, spirit. And I think that when you talk to all those uh, guy, all those people who write Doctor Who, you, you, they're all Trekkies. Not all Trekkies are Doctor Who fans, but all Doctor Who fans are Trekkies or something. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like Star Trek has always been, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I just think that when I was in elementary school, I, I it was it was a guide to how to manage my feelings, I guess, you know. And I felt that way throughout my adolescence. Well, I, when you look at how the the stories can often, especially you know, going back to Spock and Data, you know, yeah. where, where emotion is really a key part of of their character and most of their plot lines. I mean, you're you're looking at just basically using analogies to the way we would ideally want to manage our, our emotions anyway. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that they're, um, I think they're doing an interesting job of that in um, strange new worlds of sort of flipping it. Like I really loved the, um, have, are you, how caught up are you on strange new worlds? I've only seen honestly the first, like the first episode, honestly. Okay, so the, in episode five, I'll just tell you this and then I won't spoil anything else is there's a dream sequence at the beginning of episode five where Spock, Ethan Peck, Spock fights a human version of himself. And it's just a delicious thing because it reminded me of all the angsty kind of thoughts I had about Spock when I was a kid about these sort of like warring halves of yourself. Um, you know, and I thought it was really beautiful that they were like, let's have Spock fight himself. So it's also the first time we get to see a human Spock. This is like the first two minutes of the episode, so it doesn't ruin anything. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not super worried about it. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, I thought the, that idea really spoke to what you just said of the idea of like managing your emotions becomes this kind of like um, these analogies through data or Spock or seven of nine, um, you know, 
throughout the sort of, you know, the doctor in Voyager to an extent. Um, you know, and I th I think Saru to, in Discovery is sort of like that character. Uh, Rod Roddenberry's, and I interviewed him for the book, kind of talked about how he felt like Saru was kind of Discovery's version of that. Uh, the character that's sort of finding their way of like, you know, <laughs> how to like manage who they are. Like he was this cowering guy who like was a, a prey species. And then season two, he's like, can become a predator. Like, what does that mean? You know, I think that's a really interesting uh, journey. Um, yeah, there. I can't think of another series that doesn't quite like Trek. No, you know, I can't in terms, in terms of in terms of that kind of stuff, which is odd because there have been so many imitators or or, or ask people aspiring to that throne. I, I can think of, especially in the nineties, like cheap sci-fi shows were a dime a dozen at the time. Yeah, there, I have some nostalgia for those, right? Like, but but yeah, the only one I would say that that came close to having like some of the same values would be Babylon 5, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like Babylon 5 was, you know, Straczynski was a big Star Trek fan and wanted to reboot Star Trek after Enterprise went off the air. And, you know, Harlan Ellison worked on that show. And a lot of, um, you know, Walter Koenig was a regular <laughs> recurring, I don't know, did you watch Babylon 5 or? I uh, want to get into it. It just hasn't quite well, happened yet. you know what, Aaron, I'll tell you, I'll send you a list I wrote years ago of like how to like watch Babylon 5 without watching all of it. Because mm. I don't know if it aged well. You know what I mean? Like you could tell somebody right now to watch Deep Space Nine from the beginning. And I think that that person would be like, this is great, this age. Well, I don't know if Babylon 5 ages as well. Um, even though it was slightly gutsier in many ways uh, than a lot of the things that were on, but I know what you mean. Like there was a lot of hilariously bad like space, uh, uh, what is it? Space Rangers, that's a 90s show with Linda Hunt. Uh, I don't remember, uh, Space Above and Beyond. Well, yeah, that was Chris Carter, right? Or no, it was the other X-Files co-creator, but yeah. Uh, I, I, if you're looking for, it, it's cliche to throw it out there because being good because it, Firefly, <laughs> I think had the potential to go in that direction. But well, it, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it, it had the potential to do many things, which it, could, it were all cut short. So it, it's kind of a cheap shot, but I'll go with it. You know, I never liked Firefly and I feel like this may be very unpopular um about 12 years ago um and now it's like very unpopular to hate joss weed like we're very oh, popular conversation but my point is is that like i never liked the way i never liked how winky and silly that show was i always felt like it was constantly breaking i don't know i never liked firefly i don't i know that's not fair and i know a lot like of people like it I don't like it. I didn't like it. I felt, and I think I felt like you, I felt kind of like, or maybe you, that's not quite what you were saying, but I've always felt like, I just want a new Star Trek show. And this feels like something else, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, like, I don't like, I don't really watch the Orville, you know? And I know a lot of, and the Orville's not in the book. Um, and I know a lot of people love the Orville. And maybe if I do a paperback edition, I'll do more on the Orville, but I don't know. There's something about the Orville that I haven't been able to get into. And so I, even saying that I used to review the Orville for Den of Geek and I stopped because I didn't enjoy the emails I received from Orville fans, even when I said nice things about it. <laughs> All the Orville fans, people tell me, they're like, well, it's such a great show. My thought is, if it's so great, I will keep it aside for a rainy day. Yeah, you know, I, and I, I want to be diplomatic about this because I think that I could like, I could completely change my tune on this. But I think that I've just like, the Orville is one of those weird ones where I'm just like, Right, but it 
like at least with like Pandora, right? Like Mark Altman's show where people were like, this is Star Trek with the serial numbers filed off. It's like, yeah, but at least he was like doing something a little different. Whereas with the Orville, it's just like, it's so blatant that it's just hard for me to get past it. At least like Sequest, it was underwater, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And there were some Star Trek writers on it, you know? And I know there's a ton of Star Trek writers in the Orville and people always say that. Well, Jonathan Frakes directs it and Brandon Braga is a, a showrunner and all that. And, and all that is true. And what I've seen of the Orville, I've liked okay. You know what I mean? But there's something about, there's something about it where I just don't believe it. And, and that's a strange thing to say because like, you know, this, there are absolutely ridiculous episodes of Star Trek that break your sort of suspension of disbelief. It's, um, it's kind of one of the things you're having to go into in the book is that you have to make it a little different to make it the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of just, I'm basically doing what you asked is sort of speaking off the cuff and having a conversation. Uh, maybe I was afraid to, to really get into the Orville. You know, I also didn't write about Galaxy Quest and I went back and forth with my editor about that. And I think that that's what it is, is I know that Orville is serious and has become more serious, but I think I still consider it a spoof. Um, and in the way, in, in, in a good way, you know what I mean? Sure. Or, a, or, a, or a dramatic parody, uh, you know? And I think that in that way, I was like, ah, if I start doing parodies or I start doing that, then I have to like have a whole other chapter on that. And then what's that about, you know? And, I, and my editor uh, at Penguin, we went back and forth on how much we were gonna do Galaxy Quest. I ended up just not doing anything. Cause I was just kind of like, I've interviewed the director of Galaxy Quest numerous times. And Rain Wilson was in Galaxy Quest newsletter in Star Trek. And, you know, but I was just kind of like, just, so that's my defense for not having the Orville in the book. Cause I also don't have Galaxy Quest in the book. And I love I, Galaxy Quest. I love Galaxy Quest, you know? <laughs> I do too. And you don't have to defend that to me because I think either yeah. way, just sticking to the core show is probably the best way to go. Yeah, yeah. I just know there's a lot of folks on the internet who I hope buy my book and hope get where I'm coming from and who I like their point of view. Will I, a lot, I know a lot of those folks will be like, but the Orville is a Star Trek show too. And I'll be like, I hear you, but it's not. <laughs> sure. But I want them to buy your book too. Where yeah. can they find it and where can they follow your adventures? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, my book is, should be available in most regular bookstores. Uh, so a Barnes & Noble, a Books A Million, your local independent bookstore. Um, but, you know, if you want to get it on Amazon or um, barnesandnoble.com, that's great too. But yeah, I would really encourage people to get it from uh, their local bookstore. I got some, it, my editor tells me that this book is is interestingly doing better at in-person retailers than um, online. And that was sort of a flip from my first book. And I was really gratified to hear that because I'm a former bookseller. I worked in bookstores my whole life before I became a writer, you know, like my first job at 17 was at Barnes and Noble. And I was hired because the manager was a Star Trek fan. You know what I mean? And, you you know, we used to, we used to play the Star Trek customizable card game, you know what I mean? And, and then, then the Star Wars one too later, you know, Um, but uh, uh, Star Trek one came first. but yeah, um, that's where, and then, you know, I write for Inverse uh, uh, Weekly, you know, and I write for Den of Geek. I have an article with Den of Geek coming out tomorrow about the latest Strange New Worlds. Um, yeah, and then uh, I write for Fatherly. I'm an editor there. Um, so yeah, that's where you can follow me. And then I'm writing a book about Dune right now that'll come out next fall. Um, I'm gonna I, make sure, go, go ahead. ahead. But I'm saying I have, I have 15 more minutes. If we, want, we can keep talking. Well, I, I just want to make sure because... Um, I'm going to run up against my time crunch here. Okay. I want to make sure all that gets put in the show notes on my website, aaronbostic.com. And I want to thank you so much for being here. And I would like to have you back anytime. Thank you, Aaron. This is a pleasure.
I would like to thank Ryan for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. I mentioned before I was going to tie this book back to sci-fi coffee, and I strongly recommend curling up with Ryan's book and enjoying it with a bit of morning liftoff. It's a really powerful blend that has a great science fiction space exploration theme, and the two would pair very well together. Frankly, whether you're somebody who's been enjoying both coffee and Star Trek for a long time, or you're new to both, this is what you want to have. Go to sci-fi-coffee.com and use the coupon code HUNGRY for 10% off your order. Let's swing back to the conversation that Ryan and I had earlier. We spent a lot of time talking about the creative team behind the original Star Trek, and it is impossible to have that conversation without going to Gene Roddenberry. And Gene Roddenberry is a complex figure, and Ryan's book does a great job at looking at that. But you can't not respect what the man accomplished, and I'm going to open up the Good Pods app and look for more information on Gene Roddenberry, and I'm just going to type in the last name Roddenberry. And I'm going to come, I've actually come across this podcast before. It's a collection of Gene Roddenberry quotes usually read by famous people, and there's some analysis on them as well. And I think this is just a handy thing to have on hand because Lord knows we need some inspiration in this world. And sometimes it's great to get it from somebody like Gene who has a way with words, a different way of looking at life, and who we could acknowledge was just an interesting character in general. Don't forget you could subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.